0: Welcome to episode 91 of the Greater Than Code podcast. I'm Coraline Ada Emke, and I'm here today with my friend, Jessica Kerr.
1: I am happy to be here today, Coraline, especially with my friend, Sam Livingston Gray.
2: Yay, it's so good to see you, Jessica. And I'm also super excited to be here with John Sars.
3: Thank you, Sam. And our guest today is Kim Vanderspeck. She is a nerd, mom, new grandmother, wife, handywoman, quilter, costumer, genealogist, and lots of other things. She's obsessed with NYT and other crossword puzzles, uh, word games in general, and really any puzzle, which goes well with quilting, costuming, and genealogy. She started out as a mechanical engineer, but only did the math and modeling parts. She then worked in the computer industry, doing hardware and software for years before moving into education. Welcome to the show, Kim.
4: Thank you. How many careers have you had so far? Well, I guess two. uh, Engineering and then teaching. But I've done a whole lot of different things in both of those. Sweet. You must have lots of superpowers. (laughs) I've been thinking about this. I think my superpower is being able to solve puzzles and problems and teach other people how to do the same. My father and I used to do puzzles all the time when I was young. And my mother was a teacher, so it's probably a combination of both of those things. My father was the one who taught me to sew. My mother sat back on that one uh, because my father did a lot of sewing. And sewing is uh, – I'm not a fan of making clothes. Uh, I'm a fan of making things, and that is very much a puzzly type of thing to do.
0: It's interesting, Kim, you mentioned um, being able to teach others to solve puzzles, and I think – That a lot of us as software engineers think that we're good at puzzles and we enjoy solving puzzles and we enjoy the figuring it out aspect of things. But it can be a lot harder to communicate that process and communicate like the the skills that we bring to bear when we're solving a particularly difficult challenge. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about making that teachable?
4: Well, I guess when I became a math teacher, I became a teacher completely by accident. I was in graduate school and I was getting ready to go back for the fall semester. And I got a call from the public school system asking if I wanted to be a long-term sub. And that was as much thought as went into it. And that turned into 25 years. All right, then I started teaching math and because I, I think part of it was because I wasn't trained as a teacher. I had to think more of as a student in terms of teaching people how to do things and how did I learn or, How do people I know learn? In teaching math, you're teaching how to solve problems, but problems are just puzzles. So if I can make it fun in some way, I always would. And because I'm an engineer and I was in software and all that kind of stuff, I used as much technology in my classroom as possible to make things clearer so that if instead of just looking at something algebraically, students would be able to... See what an equation looks like or what it means or what a function looks like instead of just going through the rote steps and following recipes, which is the way that I learned in high school and definitely not a good way to learn.
0: Yeah, that's that's the kind of teaching I was exposed to, too. And I have to say math was my weakest subject. I was a straight A student, but I got my first and only C. In trigonometry, and I felt like I didn't know the context of the problems that I was being asked to solve. Um, it did seem like it was just a matter of memorizing techniques or memorizing formulas and applying those. And I didn't have anything to ground those in. It was I didn't really get math honestly until I took an AP Physics class in my senior year, and suddenly all of the math that I had been learning in like trigonometry and calculus had a real-life analog. And once it was framed as like calculating something related to something in the physical world or in the subatomic world or something like that, suddenly everything just clicked for
4: me. Sure, because you were applying it. And it was interesting when I went to... Start to teach the public school system. Said, "Well, you're going to need to get certification," and there are several colleges in the area. So I went and talked to the department chair at one of them about certification in math. I already had a master's degree in mechanical engineering, and I had plenty of math under my belt. And his response was, "Well, you've only had applied math." <laughs> and It's like, well, wow. okay, I'll, I'll go to a different school. But I, I've always enjoyed working with students with the application of math. And when you speak of trigonometry, in terms of understanding, I think that I'm very, I have been very good at teaching students to understand trigonometry, but I have been terrible at teaching them to memorize facts because I'm terrible at that. And I would rather understand how to do it than just memorize a list and not know what they mean.
2: Yeah, that's definitely how I was taught as well. Like, it wasn't until college, you know, I I hit calculus and was taking it at the same time as physics, and that sort of helped that subject click a a bit, Um, but it wasn't until I hit discrete math that I realized that there were parts of math that were, like, really fun, (laughs) Yeah, and I realized that the way that math is taught, it seems like somebody, like, took this giant dependency tree... And sorted it in dependency order and decided that's the order that we're going to teach math in. But the way that I think about it is that essentially, like algebra and even some of the rules that you memorize in calculus, like all of that stuff is you're being taught the grammar of a language. And it's not until you get to, you know, some of the more advanced parts of, of calculus and other branches of math that you really start speaking math as a language. And Mm -hmm. I just imagine how horrifying it would be if we taught little children, all the parts of grammar first, (laughs) before we Uh, taught them how to speak.
4: Luckily, there is a a large movement to change the way that math is taught in terms of, you know, having more inquiry-based learning and more doing math. And I, a few years ago, I completely changed the way I I taught math. And I haven't lectured in years, where when we come into the classroom, students just do math. It's 90% of a You know, hour and a half class is doing math. And I'm leading them through investigations that I have developed with lots of resources. But by leading them through, I know exactly where they're going to end up, but they think that they're discovering it. And it helps them to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. Again, there are some things that I'm bad at, like teaching them to memorize trig values, but they do understand what they are.
2: That's what crib sheets are for. (laughs)
4: That's right. You can look that up.
0: And Sam, I love your analogy of, of a lot of it being the grammar. I find that as an adult, when I have tried to, for example, maybe read a paper, read a computer science paper, I don't have the glyph vocabulary to read math equations. Mm-hmm. And I have never found a resource that is like, hey, this funny symbol is this Greek letter and it has this meaning. It seems so almost deliberately obfuscated, all the symbols that are used in math. And it feels like if you don't have those memorized, and if you didn't memorize them when you were in high school, you're kind of lost. There's, I can't find a start.
2: Well, it serves the same exclusionary purpose as any jargon does, right?
1: Maybe they obfuscated it on purpose in the sense of every word that we use in regular language has many meanings, And that's important in language. It helps us. But in math, you want to be really specific and not invoke any of those meaning things. Case in point, information theory. It's hard to talk about information with a technical definition because it's such a common word.
0: That's a really interesting point, Jessica. I gave my talk on metaphors and analogies in uh, Montreal earlier this year. And I was talking about how the thing you just mentioned, how it's important that words can have different meanings and how that can actually help us with problem solving. And one person came up to me after the talk and said that he basically disagreed with my entire premise (laughs) and wished that programming was more like math in that a symbol would have a single, simple, easy to communicate, impossible to ambiguate meaning. And I wouldn't want to program in a language like that.
2: I can kind of see where they're coming from in that it's really frustrating to be having a conversation with other engineers, especially from you know people who might be from different language platforms or different programming communities. And I use a word and they use the word and we both think we mean the same thing, but then we dig down into it and we discover that we're using it in two completely different ways. And so I feel like a lot of the... A lot of the common vocabulary of programming is highly overloaded. But yeah, I agree. Like Puns are so much fun, and they make programming so much more interesting.
4: <laughs> I think it's interesting that you you said that the person, it sounded like they wanted to take the creativity out of programming.
0: That's how it felt. I think a lot of people who are outside the industry think that programming is all about math. And again, like, I suck at math, and it's never really stopped me from doing my work. Even when I was doing machine learning, the math, I just treated it as a black box, and that was sufficient to my purposes. So the idea of making programming more math-like is horrifying to me.
4: Math is incredibly creative also, but the way that we tend to have, well, we as adults tend to have learned it in high school and elementary school. It's not creative. And I, I just recently had a student who graduated and he was planning to go into creative writing in college. And he took a year off and discovered game design. And he is now in going to start college for game design. And he, he told me he didn't realize that there was any part of creativity in programming and now he realizes that it's not only the creativity of writing the programs but he can use his creative writing skills and artistic skills and all of that to pull together something that is you know more creative than he ever would have believed but in math we have the same thing and i often always include art in anything that we almost anything that we do in calculus and trigonometry or pre-calculus uh, just to get them to realize how beautiful math is. That goes back to
2: something you mentioned earlier about um, using technology to visualize math. I'm curious, you know, there's obviously uh, gra- you know automated graphing solutions that have been out there for a while. But I'm curious what else you might have used uh, technologically to communicate ideas about math, especially like in a visual form or even otherwise.
4: Well, this gets into some of the things that I like to do. I'm going to bring those into my class, quilting. At the end of the year, the geometry class and also my AP calculus classes where they had already finished the exam, we made them all sit down at sewing machines and make quilt squares with symmetries and you know, figuring out areas and side lengths and how they ch- those things change when you have a seam allowance. And they're all, they all get to the point, whether they're ninth grade geometry students or seniors in AP calculus, they get to the point that they realize, oh, sewing is all about math. And were they seeing calculus when they were doing that particular quilt? No, but they were seeing ro- rotational symmetries and stuff. And stuff like that the other projects that i've used sewing for have been quilt blocks that have calculus topics in them where they they make a design using fabric and one that i can think of you may or may not remember Riemann sums when you're first starting integration when you're counting up the areas of rectangles and those rectangles keep getting narrower and narrower and that's something that's super easy to see You know, whether you're drawing, whether you're using Play-Doh, whether you're using fabric, but something that you can see. And then when we get into rotations of shapes, rotations around axes or building a three-dimensional shape on a base, Play-Doh, fabrics, boxes, anything that we can think of to make it visual, tangible, and beautiful.
3: That sounds amazing. I think I would have enjoyed math class a lot more if, if that was what I had.
0: Same. I think you would have too. (laughs) So I'm curious if you incorporate programming at all into your math classes.
4: Uh, Yes, some. Uh, This year we had a advanced math class that kids had already taken BC calculus, and they did some work with processing to look at fractals and what the way that they started. Some of these kids have a lot of experience with. Programming. They started in middle school. They did a four year curriculum of computer science in our high school, and they were taking two math classes and some of them two computer programming classes. And others had never written a program before at all. So the way that they all started was by looking at somebody else's code and editing it, and then seeing what happens if, and then discovering where they could go. And then others, you know, wrote their own code for a variety of types of fractals.
0: Processing is such a great choice for that because it is a simple but powerful language and the graphical output you get from processing is is frankly gorgeous.
4: Yeah. We uh, we ended up working with the director of our art department and he actually put up a show for a month of the students fractal work that they made from processing with, you know, I think 20 by 16 framed pictures.
0: That's really interesting. I think that a cross-disciplinary focus on technical topics is really fascinating because under the hood, it is all about creativity. And you're bringing me around to the idea that maybe math can be creative, too. <laughs> but uh, I would love it if our schools took an integrated approach to teaching where the history that you're learning is related to the literature that you're reading, is related to the art that you're studying, is related to the math that you're studying, is related to the science that you're studying, and bringing all that together and framing it and showing how interrelated all these various disciplines really are or can be and the value of seeing them as an integrated whole.
2: Hmm. Now I'm thinking about specialization and economic systems and why we have historically taught different subjects the way that we have. Huh. Okay, so I wonder if maybe having specialized people gives us more industrial efficiency. Uh, Okay, I really need to stop talking and think about this for a minute. Sorry.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's a good thread to pull on.
2: Okay, so maybe what we're getting at here is that historically, at least in the last century or so, we've tended to teach uh, a lot of these subjects in extremely categorical and separate and specialized ways with people who have different trainings, um, who have different cultures from those trainings and who see the world in very specific ways. And it seems to me that there's a parallel here between that and the way that we have organized work, you know, like along uh, assembly lines, which have specialized steps that each person at each stage performs and <sighs> different vertical industries that provide specialized services and, and goods. And, I wonder if now that we're coming into more of a knowledge based or information economy, whether those structures are still serving us.
0: And is that the reason that liberal arts majors have an advantage in the current workforce?
4: Ooh. That's so. an interesting question. When you said something about specializing, there have been people who have come into schools and tried to get high school students to specialize. But you don't want that. You want them to get as much as they possibly can. Because, for example, a student, the last time they see anything about DNA other than in a, in a news report about a crime might be high school biology. The last time that they, you know, read literature might be in high school English class and you need kids to not be specializing. They shouldn't be hyper-focused into what they want to do. And sometimes, especially with the students who are very interested in being computer scientists, they might kind of hyper-focus. But at the school that I just retired from, uh, we wouldn't really allow that. They could take extra classes, but they still had to take their English and their history and, and other courses.
3: That reminds me of the Heinlein quote, uh, specialization is for insects.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, you know, that's the argument that I hear for a a liberal arts education is that you want people to be exposed to lots of different disciplines, lots of different ideas, partly because, you know, you're throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks because, you know, with high school students, especially like they don't know what they're going to do yet. You know, often college students don't either, but that's another subject. But you want people to have the opportunity to discover something that they're going to be interested in and engaged with and possibly even passionate about. And if you specialize too early, you're precluding that. You're creating these very narrow-minded people who are going to completely miss out on entire fields of human knowledge because they don't even know that they're there, right?
0: Yeah, and a lot of innovation comes from stealing ideas from one domain or context and applying them in a novel domain. Yeah. And if all you're looking at is computer science, you're going to be innovating based on a much smaller, more narrowly focused branch of knowledge.
3: This is exactly back to the insect thing, because insects specialize. It's useful to the existing system. It's it's the system that wants you to specialize because that's what's most useful to the system itself rather than to being, you know, a good human. And if you want to change the system, don't specialize.
4: It's interesting what Sam had said about specializing in high school. But when you go into engineering in college, you start to specialize real quickly. You have your requirements that are outside of your major in first year and then you get into engineering and you're not taking any literature courses unless you can squeeze them into your schedule. You're not taking your foreign language courses unless they're required. And I think that I missed out on an awful lot of stuff because of that. And this was college in the late 70s, early 80s, but I don't think it's that different now.
2: No, my computer science degree did not leave a lot of room for anything else. I was Fortunate that I went to a community college first where there was broader requirements. So I got to take psychology classes and human development and sociology and all you know other interesting things that I totally draw from in my programming. I feel
0: like we put so much pressure on young people to make lifelong decisions at 16, 17, 18 years old. When I was 17 and went to college, I was not ready to make decisions that would affect the rest of my life. And my daughter is in college right now. She's actually taking a break from college right now. And people ask her, Oh, what are you studying? And she'll list off the five things that she's interested in. And they're like, no, I mean, what kind of degree do you want? And she's like, I don't know. And I think it's great that she has not decided that she's doing theater. She's doing creative writing. She's doing Japanese. She's exploring all these things that are interesting to her. And I'm not putting any pressure on her to pick something or to decide on a career path. I'm loving giving her the opportunity to explore all these different pursuits and find herself in that work.
4: I think my my path followed something quite similar to what you just described as your daughter. I changed my major in college seven times. And uh, I started in college and didn't have any idea what I wanted to major in. And now, working with seniors in high school, I do not see very many students who go to college not knowing what they want to do. I had no idea. And the most math I had taken in high school was through Algebra 2. And the reason for that was because I could take wood shop and metal shop, and I could take two foreign languages. So I, I took five years of Russian. I wanted to continue that a little bit in college. I didn't know what I was going to do. But as I changed my major, you know, I was sitting around talking to my mom one day, and she goes, well, why don't you go into engineering? And I said, well, I don't even know what that is. And she says, you're really good at math, but if you just major in math, you're probably not going to get a job other than teaching, (laughs) and you could probably make a decent living majoring in engineering. I was like, okay. And that was about as much thought as went into that. So, And I changed my major within engineering a few times. First starting off with welding engineering, that didn't go so well because for a variety of reasons. And then nuclear engineering, and then I transferred colleges and ended up graduating in mechanical engineering.
3: Yeah, I was lucky enough to attend a college that had a – there were no preset degree programs. So you basically had to put together a, a system of study. So I was able to get a degree in choreography and computer graphics. Uh, which I loved doing because I didn't have to pick one or the other. Um, And I could also mix in a lot of art and other things. But that's not something that you find very often.
2: You brought up mechanical engineering just now, which reminded me of this wonderful tweet that uh, we saw some time ago, where you were talking about one of the best ways to teach math is to teach sewing. And the best way to teach engineering is to teach costuming. And you included a video of this amazing costume costume. And I'm not even going to try to describe it. How about, I would like you to tell me what's going on here, because this is kind of amazing. And sh- listeners, we have a link to this tweet in the show notes. You should absolutely pause the show and go check this out, because it's great.
4: Okay, so when the director of the musical told me in, it was probably August, maybe July, that we were going to do C- Cinderella, and that he wanted the magical transformation of her from rags to her gown— on stage, I started thinking about it in the summer and trying to think of how on earth I was going to do that. And we audition right after we get back from winter break. So, the, right after New Year's, students audition for the musical. And that's when I would know who was going to be Cinderella. If I had known that in, say, October, I could have started working with that student. But because students, actors come in all shapes and sizes, you can't do that. So I had been trying to think of what on earth I am going to do to make this happen. The girl that's in the video, she was in many of our shows, and I'd worked with her on all kinds of other costumes. And she was willing to come in on weekends to try things and come into. Uh, I taught her in math also, so she would come into my classroom and we would try things. And it was keeping me up at night to the point where I was getting two and three hours of sleep. It was killing me, just this one costume because I wanted it to be perfect. And to be perfect, it had to be repeatable because it couldn't work in the first show but not work in the second show. So after a bunch of trial and error, and that's all it is, and that's in everything that we've talked about, what you do as computer scientists, what I do as a math teacher, what I do as a math learner, what I do as a costumer, what I do as a quilter, everything is trial and error. Sure, we know some formulas to help set it up, but they don't always work, and especially not on something like this. So that has a system of magnets. So there are magnets holding it together so that when she spins, the centripetal force—or centrifugal I don't remember which one. I don't remember which force it is. But when she spins, the magnets let loose, and that lets loose a couple of small wires that allow the dress, the gown, to come out from underneath. And it unhooked the front of the costume— and by the way she twirled, the way she moved her arms, it was able to pull the whole dress that you see at the first of the video up under the gown. And when I finally got it, it was like, I can now sleep again. But it w- it was probably two months of lack of sleep to the point where I my school, drive to school is about two miles. And... There were a couple of mornings where I I realized I was too tired to even be driving, and yet I was still going to work. (laughs) It was awful.
2: (laughs) So you talked about trial and error. So one of the things that I really love about programming is that some number of years ago, I discovered test-driven development, which lets you set up tiny experiments and then see if they work and then see if you can make them work. And one of the things that I love about programming is that our medium is so malleable and so responsive that you can do, you know... Hundreds of those little experiments in a day. Um, I also have some rudimentary sewing skills, enough to know that that stuff is really hard. So I'm really curious about your prototyping process, like how many iterations you went through. Like, were there any interesting dead ends that taught you stuff but didn't totally didn't work? Like, how was that?
4: There were, and because I have a lot of scraps of fabric, I didn't actually have a budget, but I had. I'm really cheap, right. so. I know that I don't want to spend a bunch of money on things that are going to be thrown away. So I did come up with prototypes that didn't work more than once and they involved hooks and zippers. And I tried, uh, what are they called? Piezoelectric magnets where she could flip a switch and have something happen, but that didn't work properly because the batteries wouldn't, wouldn't last long enough. It was kind of cool though. And it was more the little things that i was trying in the picture i see that there's a dress form in the background and i was trying things on that but it it takes the spin of the actor to be able to make the thing work and when i finally got it it was more absolutely trial and error there was a lot of tucking and a lot of making sure that things were tight enough so that that tucked stuff would stay and then let loose at the right time
0: i think the process is fascinating in the process that we go through whether we're rapid prototyping or doing tdd or like spending endless sleepless nights trying to solve a problem and what people see in the end like what they see from the dress that you made kim is 10 seconds of video on twitter was it just working right and people might think oh my god kim's a genius She made it look really easy. I bet that just came to her right away. And we don't really talk about the failures. We don't really talk about the prototypes that didn't work out. What we immortalize and memorialize is what finally worked. And I'm a strong proponent, I believe, in learning cultures, um, especially in our workplaces. And the most important thing about having a learning culture is making it a safe place to make mistakes, Because mistakes are what teach us, not successes. And I wish we talked about mistakes more, and I wish we talked more about the process instead of just focusing on the 10-second video that shows it all working.
4: It's interesting that you say that. When I started teaching costuming seven years ago, I told the students at the beginning of the year, you know, this is a course about failure, and you are going to try things and you are going to fail. And then you're going to try something else and you're going to fail. And then I started using that same phrase in my math class, and kids freaked out. And they freaked out because they're focused on their grades and they don't recognize that failure is the place where you learn the most. And they do get used to that. Um, I got to a point where I gave very few traditional, what you would think of traditional tests and quizzes, because they were so focused on how well they did on that, as opposed to what they were learning. I got away from that. But the failure in everything that we do is so important. And with social media, whether it be Twitter, and math teachers have a huge Twitter group. And you see all of these fabulous things that math teachers are doing and they are really free with information and super helpful on how they did things but what they're often doing is showing successes and sometimes you feel like wow i'm not i'm not worthy of being part of this group and i guess on facebook and same thing where people are only showing their best photos their best this and that and then you kind of feel like ah you know i'm not that good but like you said, it's it's so important to show the failures. That's where we learn.
3: Yeah, that's something I talk about when I'm working with new developers, when I'm doing some mentoring, is a lot of them get really disheartened when there are errors all the time in their code. And things won't compile and they won't load and they can't figure out how to install this or whatever. And every single one of them, I have to sit down and say, this is developer life. Something's always broken. Otherwise, you don't have a job. I mean, sometimes you're building new stuff, but even in that case, it's broken because it's not done yet. Um, And so you have to just get comfortable with, like, there's an error. Let's fix the error. Then there'll be another error because otherwise you're done. (laughs) And and just get comfortable with that because it's not not us professional developers who've been doing it forever. We do the same thing. We look at broken code all day.
2: Yeah, so... (sighs) You're right. I, I totally tell people that programming is this weird thing where, like, I get to go full speed until I, ran, until I run headfirst into the next obstacle, and then I'm stuck. And then I, I'm stuck on that for a while until I figure it out, and then I get to go full speed until I run into the next thing. And over time, the number of things that become obstacles have slightly decreased so I can go full speed for slightly longer at a stretch, but really like my day is being stuck and that's every day all the time. And I I can't believe I haven't thought about this before, but I just made this connection with meditation. My daughter was asking me like, what's meditation? Is it like when you sit down and don't think, which is exactly what I think a lot of people think meditation is. And I don't know, you know, I'm not an experienced meditator, I've dabbled in it, and I've tried to start a practice and failed repeatedly. (laughs) Um, But the one thing that I do know is that it's not about not thinking because your brain can't do that. It's about being comfortable with the fact that your brain generates all these random ideas, and not following them, right? It's it's sitting and recognizing that yes, this thing has happened again, and coming back to center and bringing your attention back to your focus. And that seems to me in some way that I'm not not having the words for right now to be almost exactly the same thing as, you know, getting stuck on a programming problem and feeling like you're a failure. You're not a failure at meditation because your brain comes up with ideas. That's what brains do. And you're not a failure at software because you get stuck, right? That's what the process is. It's getting around that. It's getting past that. It's getting through that.
3: Yeah, and I think that that stuck process on every subject, much like you've said, Kim, with students getting stuck on math problems or in any of those situations, the tendency to think, Oh, I'm stuck. That means I'm bad at this. Or, Oh, I'm stuck. That means I'm going to fail this whole thing. And I think, especially in high school where, where so many things are under a microscope as far as what your performance is and, and everything's graded and evaluated. And so you're, you're hyper vigilant to, you know, how that's going to reflect on whether you're a success or not. Like in all those contexts. Being able to set the stage to say, no, 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 there's room for failure here. There's This is part of the process. This is where you do the learning is, is a really revolutionary way of changing the thinking.
2: Now I'm wondering if math classes shouldn't start with five minutes of meditation.
4: Ours often do. A couple of minutes of quiet time where you don't need to do anything and then just get into it.
0: So, Kim, thinking about something we talked about at the beginning about teaching problem-solving, how much of teaching problem solving is teaching failure?
4: I think a lot of it is and should be. And what do you do when you fail? If it's on a test, what do you do if you made a mistake that cost you points? Uh, if it's just on a problem. And one of the reasons I have students do so much math in class is I found it, especially at the higher levels of, of high school math. But this I think this is true. It early levels. I mean, if you're, if you're being challenged appropriately, sometimes homework might be inaccessible to you. So if you go home and you do homework and you don't have the solutions, maybe you have the answers, you know, the, the odd problems have the answers in the back of the book or something like that. But maybe you don't have the solutions and you get the wrong answer. What do you do? So by turning it around and having people that you can talk to when you're getting those wrong answers and doing those problems in class instead of at home when you don't have help or when you are when you ask for help and you think ooh this is cheating which is ridiculous because outside of a classroom when are you ever going to work by yourself and the answer i think is never
2: even brain surgeons have support teams
4: yeah and in my classroom it's it's always group work and group discussion and students are talking about math and talking about, well, here's how I did it, but it didn't work. So it's encouraging them to go that next step because if if they don't get to the point where they're used to doing that, then they're not going to have the stick to solve problems.
3: Yeah. In in learning and in software and I think in life, having a support team is a key to success, like having those people you can rely on to help solve problems, to talk through things going on in your life, to talk through what you're learning and how you're learning it and how you're processing it. These are all very important.
2: And it works even better when the people that you're talking to have different perspectives than you do.
4: Well, like I said, I, I did not plan to get into teaching and went straight from, well, I was in, in graduate school, but before that I was in a software engineering environment and i went into a very traditional local public school where you know 25 to 30 kids in a class all of the chairs lined up in rows looking at the front of the room and i preferred to not have a front of my room and after a very short while and i didn't have my own classroom after a very short while i started having them work in groups and the tables would be turned so that they could they were the the desks where you have the little tablet type of thing to write on. So they would turn those and work in groups of two to four. And then the bell would ring, and everybody had to rush out. And I didn't always have time to change the desks back. And the teachers coming came in after me were rightfully upset that their room was messed up. But it was a case of me being coming directly, almost directly from industry of why would there be rows of students working individually when the best way to work would be to work with other people to get their ideas.
2: I feel like that comes back to factory line versus knowledge work.
0: Yeah, and I I think it also ties into the idea that people have of lone geniuses or people working independently and coming up with these brilliant solutions and not seeing the incredible, if nothing else, support network that these own geniuses had. But in fact, the teams of people that are responsible for the successes that we are attributing to single people, we put a lot of emphasis on individualism and individuality, which I think is good. But that needs to be balanced by the by the recognition that no one actually is doing anything alone. Not even insects.
2: Are there things that, like, you have encountered as a teacher or as an engineer that you're like, I wish I could communicate like this one thing you know if i could go back and meet my students five years earlier and and get them to understand this it would make things so much better like are, is there anything like that on your mind or
4: i don't think so i mean th- w- what i think of immediately when you say if i could get them to understand this i think of content and the content is so unimportant it's the perseverance i mean my students say they graduated there there are several who meet my husband and me at A local pub on a relatively frequent basis. The things they learned for me that were important were not anything to do with math, but life lessons are the things that are the most important. And I think that that perseverance part of math—it's not the content. It's you know, what do you do when you get stuck? What do you you know? The the other big thing that I teach them, and I, I tell them the 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 most important thing that I teach my students is that you always over tip for breakfast so uh, (laughs) because uh breakfast is the cheapest meal of the day and it's as much or more work for the waitress or the wait staff and you should tip really really well and (laughs) so we go out to breakfast several times a year and that is their big life lesson from me and they tend to remember that and mentioned many times over the years after they've graduated
0: so at the end of every episode, we reflect on the conversation that we've had and think about salient points that were made or things that we want to think about a little bit more, or things that we want to work on a little more. And um, I open sourced my to-do system a couple of months ago. It's called LFTM, Low Friction Task Management. I'll put a link in the show notes. And one of the things that I do, it's all text files. And I have a reminders section at the bottom of my daily journal. And one thing that has stayed in my reminders section for months now is this three-word phrase, show your work. And I have a tendency, I, I have an inventor mindset. So I tend to make quick, intuitive leaps to different concepts. And it's been pointed out to me before that I can make a leap like that and assume that I've got people right there with me. And assume that people agree with me or that they're seeing the world through the same lens that I am. And that's often and maybe even usually not the case. So I'm reminding myself to show my work to make sure that I'm bringing people along and going back and connecting those dots. Because maybe maybe I skipped 10 steps with an intuitive leap, but there is a path connecting where I started to where I ended up. And I feel like a lot of what we've talked about today is about showing your work. It is about talking about our failures and talking about experiments that we tried that didn't go the way we wanted them to go. And I just think it's it's emphasized for me the, the importance of showing your work to set not only to bring people along to where you are, but also to set the example of the process that it takes to arrive at a given conclusion or a given solution or a given invention. So thank you for that.
2: So for me, a lot of what we've been talking about today comes down to the value of perspective. There's there's the importance of getting an education that exposes you to different ideas and different perspectives. There's the value that you can bring to a specialized environment like teaching when you have a different perspective from, say, working in engineering. Um, there's having the perspective that failure is okay, that it's a good thing, that it's something that you can manage and work through. So yeah, I think if anything, that's the one thing I'm going to take away from this conversation today is perspective. So thank you.
1: A phrase that stood out to me today was, to be perfect, it had to be repeatable. That's what made the dress so hard, among other things. And it's what makes our job so hard too, because as programmers, as developers, we take something that someone knows how to do and we make it repeatable. And that's really hard. But something that helped with the dress was knowing who was going to wear it. So it mattered who was doing it. And the context of the spin became really important too. So we don't make something repeatable everywhere in the universe. We make it repeatable for particular people in a particular context and recognizing that can help us get our job done well and make it beautiful.
4: I wish I had said that. <laughs> but you did see that. That was totally your quote.
3: I think, Sam, your point about the, the parallels between uh, the obstacles of, to programming and the obstacles to meditation, I think that applies to like well beyond all of that, like the obstacles to life, the obstacles to whatever you're doing. I think the same mindset is applicable that it's like that you have to do you have to fail first you have to learn from the failure and that's how you get better and if you plan for that if you realize that this is what's going to happen you can not be quite so distraught when the when those failures do happen because you're realizing that that's an integral part of of the path rather than you know you completely failing at the path and shouldn't shouldn't even try again and so i'm going to think about that as broadly as possible kim what are your thoughts what has this been like for you
4: Well, from all of the conversations we've had and from what I'm going into next, uh, we've talked a lot about basically productive failure. We've talked about trial and error. We've talked about, when I was talking about math, I was talking about doing things that were beautiful. Uh, And I'm now going into a part-time college teaching position. And that's pretty scary because it's, I don't think I will be as free to do things the way that I believe they should be done. And much of that is because the college has a set, you know, these exams count for this huge percentage of the semester grade. And then you can have other things. And I'm, it makes me reflect on what I believe in and be scared about what is coming up. Because for those students, when you, an exam counts for so much of their grade, failure is not really an option. Or if it is, it's a bad option.
0: Kim, it's been a delight talking to you today. You're a fantastic guest, and I love the conversations that we had. So thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you for having me. Yay, yeah, thank Thanks. you. This has been Episode
1: 91 of Greater Than Code with special guest Kim Vanderspeck. If you enjoyed this or any other episode of Greater Than Code, consider donating to our Patreon, because Greater Than Code is a listener-supported podcast. And if you donate any amount to our Patreon, then you can join our Slack, and it's super awesome and friendly and nice, and I like it, and you might too. The end.
0: (laughs) I wish you had more enthusiasm, (laughs) Uh, Jessica. You come across so deadpan. It's just... yeah. Yeah,
2: if you were more enthusiastic, you could say that was your superpower...